You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We are joined today by Francis Gary Powers, Jr., the son of Francis Gary Powers, the pilot of the U-2 spy plane that was shot down over the Soviet Union in 1960. His father was captured by the Soviets and eventually traded back to the United States for captured Soviet spy Rudolf Abel. Gary Jr. is the acting president of the Tyson's Regional Chamber of Commerce, the president of Powers Consulting, and the founder and chairman emeritus of the Cold War Museum in Vint Hill, Virginia. He has spent much of his adult life trying to educate the public on the real story behind the U-2 incident, dispelling myths and ensuring his father's legacy among the greatest of American heroes. Gary, thank you for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to I start talking to you a little bit about your, your father, because for most of the listeners out there, they're, they're well-educated to the point where they've, they've heard his name in school. They may have even studied the incident. Uh, he is a, a legendary figure in Cold War history, but he's your dad. Uh, and so at what point in your life did you realize your father wasn't just some guy, that he was someone that would be a household name for decades and much longer to come? The, the realization happened um, basically when he died. Up until that point, uh, it was a normal childhood. Hiking, biking, fishing, getting in trouble, playing games, having fun, growing up as a kid in this family. I was aware as a young kid that my father had been shot down over Russia, imprisoned by the KGB, and ultimately exchanged for a Soviet spy. But as a kid, growing up in this family, this was all very normal. We talked about it. I was aware of it. So my perception as a young kid was that everybody's dad had been through something like this. That perception changed August 1st, 1977. Dad dies in a helicopter crash working for NBC television. Uh, I come home with my mom to a house full of people. They inform us of the bad news. Our lives are turned upside down. And as a result, I become very introverted don't understand why the press calls the house to ask questions, why friends at school would come up to me and tell me something they knew about my dad. All of a sudden, these peers at school knew something about me and my family, but I really didn't know anything about them or their family. So it was an adjustment for me to get through throughout high school. Right. In college, I came out of my shell, started to do research, wanted to find out more about my father. And what, what's happened over the last 20-plus years now, I didn't start this journey to vindicate my dad. I started doing research to find out the truth so I knew how to answer questions. Right. And as a result, Dad got vindicated, Cold War Museum was founded, have a good working relationship with the Spy Museum. It's, it's been a very wonderful effort that I never knew would happen. And, and I think even the people who know the story and even know the right story might be interested to know that even if this wasn't part of his history, even if he hadn't been shot down and, and, and traded for and done all the things that he did, uh, very you know, uh, honorable things that he did while, while under uh, confinement, he would still go down in history as an extremely accomplished pilot. <laughs> I mean, this is somebody who fought in Korea and was, at the time, was one of the most veteran U-2 pilots that we had. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. Um, it's not just Dad <clears throat> that was on the U-2, uh, was a U-2 pilot. There were 24 
and that, that plus or minus two, 24 original U-2 pilots. And all of those pilots risked their lives daily when they were flying these U-2 missions. They uh, primarily came from the U.S. Air Force. They were fighter pilots. Uh, they were recruited because of their outstanding record and proficiency as a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot. Uh, uh, basically, Apple Pie, Chevrolet, USA, go, go, go. They were very patriotic, uh, very dedicated, very intelligent individuals who were the best of the best of the Air Force pilot squadrons that were recruited for these missions. Uh, you mentioned uh, a moment ago in regards to Dad and fighting in Korea. He served during Korea, okay. but did not see actual combat or missions in Korea. Okay. Uh, he was stateside uh, when the Korean War was happening in 1950, 52. Um, was supposed to go out uh, and uh, to um, uh, Korea with his squadron, ended up having an appendicitis, which laid him up in the hospital for two or three weeks. As a result, the rotation he missed, and then as a result of that missing the rotation, he was then recruited by the CIA to do the U-2 right. program. Well, one thing I found interesting when I was doing research about this was uh, many people certainly can't understand what it means to fly in a U-2 at that altitude, uh, and and so we just a week ago we we posted a podcast with an SR seventy one pilot even more so, and, and many people out there haven't flown themselves very much at all. Uh, you flew some with your dad. Yes. Uh, are you a pilot now yourself? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and and does this help you understand a little bit more about your dad's life and flying sure. you too? Well, um, I am not a pilot. Um, I don't have that passion. My dad had that passion from when he was 12 or 13 years old. He had a flight in a biplane. He left his heart up there. He knew he was going to be a pilot from a very early age. Um, I had one hour logged in a flight book when I was 16 years old. My mom said, hey, if you'd like to do pilot lessons, I'll be glad to help offset the cost. Mm -hmm. um, but you've got to commit to it. Uh, and I did my first flight lesson. Uh, I want to say Whitman Airport out near Van Nuys, California. Uh, got up, did it with the pilot, landed. I just, it, it didn't click right. for me. Um, so I didn't want to do it at the time. And nowadays, I love flying. I enjoy flying with friends. Um, I have a few friends who do have planes that take me up on occasion. But I, I really have no desire to do it. I just, that's not my call in life. But it was my father's. And he flew um, and wanted to fly from the time he was a boy. The reason he did uh, recruit, uh, went into the Air Force was so that he could become a fighter pilot. He, he knew that was going to be his profession going right. forward. Have you had a chance to go up in a U-2 at any point to kind of see uh, what it was like? Well, as a matter of fact, yes. Uh, back in May 1st of 2000, the 40th anniversary of the U-2 incident, um, I had the privilege and the honor of being uh, chosen or selected to do a U-2 high flight in conjunction with a few things. One... The Air Force was going to market and promote the flight to help recruit new pilots to the program. And two, Dad was going to be posthumously awarded uh, the same day I took the flight with a POW medal for a prisoner of war mm -hmm. for his incarceration. And the way this all came about was that in 1998, there was a declassification conference hosted at Fort, um, uh, the National War College, Fort McNair, mm -hmm. I believe, right. right down the street. And at that time, it was shown that the U-2 program was a joint CIA-Air Force program. It was not just a civilian program, uh, but it was military and civilian combined to do these missions. As a result of the declassification that took place, uh, Dad's records were updated to show military service between 1950, when he first went in, through 1963, when he got out of the Air Force and went to work for Lockheed. So that opened up the door for his POW medal, mm -hmm. It opened up the door for his posthumous awarding of the Distinguished Flying Cross. And at the same time that they uh, awarded those medals in May of 2000, the director of CIA, George Tenet, uh, uh, awarded him the Director's Medal mm -hmm. for extreme fidelity and courage in the light of duty. So as a family, we were very, very honored, very humbled. Uh, it was a wonderful to know that they acknowledged Dad's contribution to our country, even though, you know, 40 years after the fact, uh, they did it, they set the record straight. Right. And as an added bonus, I got a fly on a U-2. Yeah. It was awesome. <laughs> um, I went through the pre-breeding sequence. I went through the training. I went through the briefings to make sure that I wouldn't freak out in a confined space. They wanted to make sure I wasn't claustrophobic. They wanted to make sure that I was aware of all the safety protocols that I'd have to go through in the event of an emergency, and I had to eject. Um, I remember being followed around by a History Channel camera, and they were documenting mm -hmm. everything at the time. My mom, my sister was there. My, my fiancé was there. Uh, friends and family from L.A., California came up for it. 
Uh, it was a beautiful day. Um, we take off uh, in the U-2. Uh, Brian Anderson is the pilot of that mission. Uh, he flies me up to 72,126 feet. I fly over Sacramento, over Los Angeles, uh, fly back around over San Francisco, and then back down over Sacramento to Beale Air Force Base. And so it was a wonderful flight, an amazing flight. I could see the curvature of the Earth. Mm. I was able to look out the cockpit uh, and look straight up into the blackness of outer right. space. Um, I was able to really just have some, some reflection and some moments where I was uh, re re remembering what it was like to be with my dad and experiencing what he must have gone through when he was flying these planes. Right. So it was really, really a touching moment and one I'll never forget. It was most people don't get the chance to kind of experience the same feelings of, of like a parent in that case. Mm -hmm. um, one thing before we move on to the incident itself, I, I, your father, even in his death, was heroic. Uh, and the story of the helicopter crash is pretty extraordinary. Uh, you had already mentioned in 1977, while he was a helicopter pilot for a news channel in California, uh, he had a faulty fuel gauge, if I remember the story right. right. And uh, he could have landed and saved himself, but the only landing place was full of people. And so instead of landing on a group of people, yeah. he essentially sacrificed himself to save them. Now, that's correct. Um, it's my understanding that uh, when my father realized that the helicopter was in the process of running out of gas, he started to do the procedure for the auto rotation, which basically would allow the helicopter to land a hard landing, mm -hmm. but it would cushion it enough to do a hard bump, and then it would uh, uh, prevent the death of the pilot and the passenger that was in it, the cameraman. Uh, but when Dad selected the spot from, you know, I don't know, 200 feet up, and you start on, on your vector system, well, he's going down, he sees kids playing baseball in the field where he's looking to land. And he realizes that if he lands on top of them, that would right. not be a good scenario. So he diverts. Once he diverts, it loses the airframe, the air pressure. There's not enough lift to keep right. the helicopter in the, in the air. It falls to the ground. He and the cameraman are killed in the accident. So, yeah, up until the very end, Dad uh, did look out for others. Yeah. So some people may not understand the importance of especially generations now when the Cold War has been long over for many people. I mean, I, when I taught, taught history at the University of Maryland, no one was alive during the Cold War. My students, it's one of these where they just don't remember uh, the, the, the kind of dynamic, the, this fear everybody has. So a lot, maybe people out there don't understand the importance of the U-2 flights to American national security in the late 50s and early 1960s. Can you talk a little bit through, uh, as the Cold War historian herself, talk a little bit through why uh, the U-2 program was so in, so key to American national security. Well, you, you have to start a few years before the U-2 program. Uh, I want to say in 1955, President Eisenhower uh, discusses with Premier Khrushchev of the Soviet Union the open skies policy. And uh, uh, Eisenhower basically pitches the following. I'm going to paraphrase. We will allow you, the Soviets, to overfly our country in exchange you allow us to overfly your country. Each side can take pictures and verify that the other side is not building up missiles, weapons, or trying to prepare for a surprise attack. That way we can peacefully coexist, we can build a better harmony, we can work together well as countries, not adversaries. Well, Khrushchev at the time said, no, yet, I do not want these Americans flying over my airspace. So General LeMay, Alan Dulles, CIA, State Department, uh, uh, President Eisenhower are all concerned. Oh my gosh, Khrushchev's hiding something. He doesn't want us to fly over his property because he's afraid we'll find out he's preparing for a surprise attack right. or a missile buildup or a bomber buildup or whatever it may be. Um, and so Khrushchev says no. Well, this concerns American uh, diplomats and, and president and all. And they say, well, gosh, we've got to find out what he's hiding. So Eisenhower authorizes the development of the U-2 spy plane, uh, a new unique plane that would fly upwards of 70 to 75,000 feet on operational missions, well out of the reach of the then Soviet SA-1 missiles. So Eisenhower uh, gets CIA to control the program. Uh, LeMay, General LeMay, U.S. Air Force, wanted to control the program. Uh, there was a little internal bickering right. over it. Uh, but Eisenhower prevailed, and he said if it was a military operation, a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot flying over a foreign co country, hostile country, that would be considered an act of war. Right. So the CIA 
flying a civilian aircraft with a civilian pilot over a foreign country would not be an act of war. It would only be espionage. Right. So he <laughs> wanted to go that route <laughs> as opposed to the, the act of war route. And so he authorizes the development of the U-2 program. Lockheed Aircraft Corporation beats out a couple of other contractors for developing the airplane. Kelly Johnson, uh, aeronautical engineer extraordinaire. Legend. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah in the aviation community, uh, is uh, selected through Skunk Works to build this uh, airplane um, with uh, about an 80-foot wingspan, a 40-foot fuselage, very lightweight, no weapons on board, only camera and photographic equipment and reconnaissance equipment. Uh, they build it within about eight months under budget, and they uh, implement the first flight. After training the pilots, the first flight's flown July 4th of 1956 over downtown Moscow, comes back out. Khrushchev makes a stink. The Americans are overflying my country, mm. but there's no proof. He can't prove that right. it was the Americans that overflew the country, only that this airplane was up over his airspace and he couldn't shoot it down. So for the next five years, Khrushchev is trying to shoot down an air U-2. They're invulnerable, invincible. They're above the reach of Soviet uh, missiles. And over that time period, well, Soviets, R&D, research and development, they build a better, better missile, the SA-2, that could reach altitude of 70,000 feet. And uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, depends on what side of the rock you're on, right, uh, right place the right time, wrong place the wrong time, dad's over spurred lofts, the new and improved missiles fired, uh, eight missiles are fired, near miss of one of them, below and behind the tail section causes structural failure. So I'm sure you're going to ask another question here in a moment about conspiracy theories and other we'll well, rumors that, and speculation, yeah. <laughs> but that's what happened. It was right. not anything but the near miss of a Soviet SA-2 missile. Well, and, and I think that even in getting shot down, your father was bringing back key technological intelligence that the Soviet air defenses now are far more capable than we thought they were beforehand. I mean, again, it's not the best way to learn that. Right. Well, you know, but, you know, there weren't, you know, the, the SR-71 program, which follows on that, purposely doesn't fly over the, the Soviet Union because of that lesson learned, mm -hmm. because of the, the, your dad's shoot down. So I've always thought one of the most interesting and maybe even humorous in hindsight aspects of the, the U-2 program before your dad was shot down was the idea that both sides, it was in their best interest to keep the program secret as long as they possibly could. For the Americans, for Eisenhower, he doesn't talk about it because it's top secret. Uh, and this, of course, hurts Nixon's chances in the 1960 election against JFK because the Democrats are yelling about the missile and bomber gap, which we know doesn't exist, but we only know it because of the U-2. And then Khrushchev wants to keep silent on this because it, not being able to shoot down a plane flying of airspace is not a good PR. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this, this to me, a fun historical dynamic? Oh, yes. no, it's very interesting that you touch on that. Um, I um, have had the chance on numerous occasions to talk to Sergei Khrushchev, Khrushchev's son. He is on uh, our board of directors for the Cold War Museum, um, honorary board. But uh, he and I have had a beer together. We've sat down. We've compared notes. And, and we've had a very nice conversation. We're friends. So one of the things he told me, and I find this very, very fascinating, is that when his father said no to the open skies policy, and everybody got all ruffled in America, oh, he's hiding something, he did it not because he had something to hide. It's what he didn't right. have that he wanted to hide. He didn't have the missiles that he was boasting about. He didn't have the bombers that he was bragging about. Uh, he, at one point in time, Khrushchev had said that we are pumping out s missiles like sausages. And so to our military leaders, that was a concern. Oh, my God, we have this fanatic over in Soviet Union who's threatening us with bombers and missiles. We have to find out what he, what he has. Um, so that was very interesting that, that Khrushchev you know, didn't say no to the open skies policy because he had something that's what right. he didn't have. He was playing poker. He was bluffing. Absolutely. And on the other side, here we have Eisenhower and our military leaders all concerned that this foreign country is building up their military so that they can do a surprise attack. Um, the Soviets often thought that we were going to do the surprise attack because, as Khrushchev, Sergei, is related to me, in 1952, we elected President Eisenhower a military general to lead our country to the Soviet Union, that meant one thing. We were going to go to war with right. them. So here you have these two powerful countries miscommunicating. 
<laughs> back and forth in the height of the Cold War. And so it was just interesting to know that through open discussion and open dialogue, I believe that we should learn from these mistakes right. um, and uh, make sure that we have these connections with these other powers in the world today so that we have open communications and are not, not trying to hide or keep secret uh, things that really don't really matter. Well, and I think one of the great, when I used to teach this, one of the great stories of this period was we knew very little, very little about what was happening inside the Soviet Union, whereas the Soviets knew a whole lot about what was happening in the United States. It wasn't particularly difficult to run human intelligence operations in the U.S. when you can take a drive around the country and go, oh, there's a military base, there's a nuclear weapons silo, you know, or if you want to know what politicians are thinking, you pick up the Washington Post, or, yeah. you know, you can't do that with Pravda. Uh, and so we were completely in the dark, and that's another reason that why would Khrushchev agree to open skies when he's got all the information that he needs? And the same, the U2 really opens up that the capabilities of finding out what's happening. I mean, the importance there is, to me, a night and day. I mean, imagery intelligence in the 1950s and 60s is a really the great equalizer in intelligence in the Cold War. Oh, yeah. Um, I, uh, one of our friends, a good family friend that has just recently passed away, Dino Brugioni, uh, was uh, uh, with Art Lundell at NPIC, and it was Dino's operation to uh, get the photographs from the YouTube program, and his team would analyze them and then pass them on up to the hierarchs in the military for uh, reconnaissance analysis and interpretation. Uh, he ended up, Dino uh, ended up briefing President Kennedy during the Cuban Missile right. Crisis with the YouTube photos that were brought back. Right. So it was a great program that the U.S. implemented. Uh, it covered uh, uh, wide um, swaths of the Soviet Union, bringing back in this critical information, dispelling the missile gap, dispelling the bomber gap, and showing that the Soviets weren't quite as powerful as they were boasting and bragging. But again, it was because of the fear of the time right. that the program was implemented. Um, it was the fear of nuclear annihilation, the fear of the red menace, McCarthyism, the red scare, the paranoia of the time, which the Bridge of Spies movie captures wonderfully. Absolutely. Based on but your conversations with your father and your research, um, I'm interested to know, I, I've read actually conflicting reports in, 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 about his treatment when he was a POW, uh, about whether it was physical, torture is the wrong word, enhanced interrogation, um, what, were there, were there mental torture, mental uh, games played with him to try to get him to talk because he knew a lot of information mm -hmm. uh, and he did not give up this information. Uh, but they certainly, this is the KGB we're talking about, they had to try. <laughs> so you can talk a little bit about the kind of sure, conditions sure, that sure. he faced when he was a POW. Yeah, the interrogations and what he went through as a prisoner uh, during the first three months uh, was a, a very um, critical time. Um, when, when the pilots were being trained, they were told, if you're caught, you will be tortured. Here is a poison-tipped needle, a device that can be used to alleviate the pain and suffering. Um, the poison-tipped needle uh, was an optional device to take and an optional device to use at the pilot's discretion in the event of torture. Um, now, I'm going to get back to that in a bit. Mm -hmm. But in regards to this is what they were told. They thought when they were flying over this country, if they're caught, they're going to be tortured. That's what we expected the Soviets to do. My dad gets caught um, in the middle of the Soviet Union. Nowhere to run, 1,300 miles from the closest border. He's stuck. He cannot get away. Um, he realizes that he's in a very dire predicament. Um, he's been caught and captured by the KGB. Uh, six hours after his shoot down, he's at a Lubyanka prison. Uh, trying to sleep the first night there, May 1st of 1960. The first seven days of his capture, he's lying to the, uh, his captors outright, trying to mislead them any way he could, trying to hold back as much information as possible. But then, May 7th, international headlines around the world, U2 shot down, summit conference in jeopardy, Eisenhower caught embellishing are the type of headlines we would have read. The KGB guard in charge of the interrogation a copy of the New York Times, rushes into the interrogation chamber, shoves the newspaper in my dad's face, yells at him, you've lied to us. You told us you were trained in Arizona. Well, the New York Times says you were trained in Nevada at Area 51. You might as well tell us everything. We'll get it out of your American press anyways. So <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, rock in a hard place. Right. 
um, if he tells the full truth, he's giving away secrets. Right. If he lies and gets caught, he could get shot, face the death penalty for espionage. So for the next three months of his solitary confinement and interrogation, he does the following. He tells the full truth when he knows they can verify the information in the press. Helps to give him credibility. Right. Lies to him outright when he knows there's no way they can find out the information. Basically, he played dumb. Um, when a artifact, artifact, when a, a piece of equipment was brought in and said, what does this do? Uh, he would go, I don't know what that is. I am only a pilot. I was hired to fly the plane. We were never briefed on the equipment. Well, in actuality, right. they knew every bit of that plane, inside and out. In the event that something went wrong during a mission, they had to troubleshoot the problem with an engineer when they got back to fix the problem. They knew every piece of the equipment. So that's one of the things my dad was able to do was to play dumb and not give out information on the equipment on board the plane. The other thing is he did a part lie, part dance, dance around the subject. Um, when he knew that they knew something about the question they were asking, but not enough to contradict his answer, such as the altitude he was flying. Throughout the interrogations, my father always maintained that he was at the maximum altitude of 68,000 feet when he was shot down. Mm -hmm. In reality, U-2s fly between 70 and 75,000 feet. He did this uh, false altitude for two reasons. One, 68,000 feet was close enough to be believable, right. yet far enough away to keep other pilots out of harm's way should the missions continue. The other reason, and he told me this as a young kid, was that he was trying to get a message back home to his employer, the CIA. Hey guys, I'm not telling the full truth. But that wasn't discovered until he was brought back home and debriefed. So as a result of that altitude being used, the CIA guys knew, well, that's not the right altitude. He was supposed to be at 70,500 feet. Right. Did he descend? Did he have a flame out? Did, is he lying? They didn't understand why he was using that, that figure until he got back home, which added to the conspiracy theory right. that there was a flame out. Um, I'm going to touch on that again in a second, too. But in regards to the interrogation sequence, I mean, here he is answering questions. It, it's a hostile environment. Bright spotlight, grueling questions, threats of death. Um, hot interrogation room, uh, KGB officers and some civilians held uh, around him. No physical abuse, no Chinese water torture, no bamboo under the fingernails, no roughing up per se, um, no violence, no physical violence, but a lot of mental violence, the bright spotlights, the sleep deprivation. I remember my father telling me, as that's very accurately portrayed in the movie Bridge of Spies, how he would be taken into the interrogation chamber, didn't know if it was one hour, eight hours, how long of time it was, he'd be let out, he would start to try to sleep, and he couldn't tell you if it was five minutes, ten minutes, an hour, eight hours, how long he slept. He knew that sometimes they'd take him in, he'd set his head down, they'd get him back out. Right. Um, but other times he'd actually get some sleep, wake up for the next interrogation round, and still not realize it's been two hours or eight hours, he just had no concept of right. time. Um, that was the, the worst of the abuse, per se, the mental anguish. Right. Uh, fortunately, there was no physical torture. And I've been told uh, by uh, certain individuals uh, in the Soviet Union or the Russia today that the reason my father was not tortured, the reason he was not executed, uh, is first, he was a high-profile prisoner. He was a propaganda piece. Right. They, the Russians, the Soviets at the time, wanted to show how humane they they wore, how they treated their, the, how they treated the spies that they caught. Unlike America, who when they caught spies like the Rosenbergs, right. they executed them. Like Rudolf Abel gave them a him a thirty year prison sentence. With Russia and the trial, the show trial that my father went through, uh, after the two days of the court proceedings, uh, they sentenced him to ten years in prison, and no death penalty. Right. So for that, that was their effort to show the world how humane they were and how they treated their prisoners, um, which was a slam against the United States. Hey, you would mentioned several of the conspiracy theories that we can kind of go through and debunk. Well, you've already mentioned a couple of them. One was that he disobeyed orders by not killing himself. And I think that's really the easiest one. Sure. There was 
There was no order, right? I mean, that's correct. And in the CIA uh, debriefing transcript and the uh, transcript from the uh, Senate Select Committee hearing of March 6, 1962, um, and I'm going to paraphrase here, um, pilots are perfectly free to, if captured, pilots are perfectly free to tell the Soviets that they are doing a photographic imagery reconnaissance from the airplane. Um, they are not to divulge certain aspects of the plane or the equipment on board. Um, in regards to the use of the needle, as I mentioned earlier, it was an optional device to take, an optional device to use at the pilot's discretion. Now, I believe that the uh, CIA handlers um, uh, encouraged them. Of course, if you're caught, you will be tortured. Here is a way to alleviate right. the pain and suffering. But there was never any official order to commit suicide. Um, the pilots were not ordered to take the device with them on the missions. It was up to them to say yes or no. It's my understanding that on this particular mission, one of the longest ever attempted, uh, my father did decide to take this device for the first time because he thought, well, just in case something happens, I can use it to escape mm -hmm. on someone else. I can, if I'm in an accident or crash, I'm bleeding out, I've lost a limb, I can use it to alleviate the pain and suffering. And if I'm caught and going through interrogations and torture, I can use it to commit suicide to prevent that abuse from happening. What happened is after my father's uh, shoot down, he's parachuting to the ground. He looks at the silver dollar that the pin is housed in. He goes, well, shoot, that's the first thing some Soviet's going to want as a souvenir. He takes the pin out, throws away the silver dollar, puts the pin in his uh, flight suit pocket. On the third strip search, after he's captured, I'm not sure if it's that same day or the day after, uh, the, the pin is found. And when he finds, the, the, the guards finds it, he goes, oh, be very careful with that. My father did not want to have a murder conviction right. on top of the espionage conviction. He was already in enough trouble. The Soviets test the device on a dog. The dog dies in 20 seconds of asphyxiation. The needle was coated with either shellfish toxin or curare. Don't know which one, but either one causes the central nervous system right. to shut down and you die from lack of oxygen. Well, that scenario went hand in hand with the cover story. The cover story that was released is that the pilot had radioed trouble with his oxygen equipment. So pilot radios trouble with oxygen, dead pilot no right. oxygen, plausible deniability. But the funny thing of all this, from the research I've done, left-hand, right-hand scenario. The government doesn't always know what the other side's doing, what the other hand is doing. So the pilots were never told what the cover story was. They were never ordered to commit suicide. And yet when the cover story is released, it says that the pilot had radioed trouble with oxygen equipment. <laughs> so it's just one of those things where right. the right hand and the left hand of the government didn't know what they were doing, uh, and I'm sure that they've improved that since that time. Well, and, <laughs> and from what I've read, there was no expectation that the aircraft would be in any it would be in more than just little tiny pieces if it hit the ground. I mean, yeah. that's why this, this weather mission cover story was deemed plausible because no one expected either a pilot to survive parachuting from that altitude or the plane to survive in one piece, yeah. and both happened in that yeah. case. Um, Alan Dulles assured President Eisenhower that if the plane was shot down, that a pilot would not live through it. Um, and then I want to say Eisenhower's son, or not grandson, not David Eisenhower, but I want to say Eisenhower's son, John Eisenhower, I believe, who was working in the administration in some capacity, is quoted in his memoirs uh, saying that they confirm with my father that the pilots won't live through a shootdown, but they give the SOB parachutes. <laughs> so I found that humorous. <laughs> well, yeah, psychological. <laughs> Apparently, glad, it's glad they did because... Yeah. Uh, well, history would be very different. There's another interesting controversy that I think has been debunked, but I, I'd, I'd love for you to talk about it, is uh, our vaunted signals intelligence by the NSA uh, picked up what they thought was the U-2 flying at much, much lower altitude. And that's where the conspiracy theory that your father had lowered uh, his altitude to such a degree that he was shot down because he was flying too low. Right. Uh, and it seems like they picked up something completely different than the U-2 in that case. Correct. And what our research has shown uh, is this document. I believe the document from the NSA is still classified. We'd love for it to be declassified. Right. But they feel that it would show how they gather information so that's top secret and it can't be in the public domain. But what we think and have pieced together 
is that my father is flying at 70,500 feet. There are eight missiles fired. Um, several planes have been uh, scrambled to intercept him. Uh, two MiGs and at least one SU-9. Um, one of the MiGs does not clear the airspace quickly enough and they shoot down one of their own pilots at the same time they're shooting down my dad. Different missile, mm -hmm. different altitudes, right. but same effect. They, they shoot down one of their own. Another pilot, an SU-9 pilot, was ordered without his pressure suit to jump in the plane, get up there. He didn't have any weapons on the plane, but it could fly very high. SU-9 new airplane could zoom up to 70,000 feet. So this guy was ordered to ram the plane. He overshoots it. My father does not see the plane. <laughs> um, and what happens, once he overshoots, he's running low on fuel, he has to descend and circle down to land. So in the confusion of battle, all the transmissions are going back and forth. The NSA is listening to the Russian uh, uh, chatter back and forth, and they're confused because they fired eight missiles. They think they've hit the plane. They realize they hit their own plane. They know that another plane's descending. They think it's the U-2. They're talking about this back and forth. And so the NSA uh, mistakenly thinks that my father had descended or was in the process of descending mm -hmm. and even landed the plane intact. Right. Some of the rumors came out. Um, but after now 55 years, a lot of um, declassified documents, a lot of research from fellow researchers, it's shown that he was at altitude. It was not the near. It was a near miss of a Soviet SA-2 missile, not um, the Su-9 pilot, not sabotage, uh, not uh, a flame out, or not an intentional defection. Uh, but again, conspiracy theories will yeah. always find some point of contention, some loophole that gives possibility to an alternative scenario. We won't even bring up <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald, and we'll, we'll, yeah, yeah, well. we'll skip that. The last one I want to ask you about uh, before we talk about the movie uh, is his cellmate and the diary that he's asked to keep. Um, you've written that uh, you think the cellmate was probably a plant. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because this is a story sure. that most people don't get when they get the power <laughs> story in school. Um, after my father uh, was in his first three months of solitary confinement and the trial, that lasted about three, three and a half months, he's transferred to Vladimir Central Prison, three hours outside of Moscow. At this facility, he has a cellmate, a Latvian, Zergard Krimish. And he explains to my dad that he was caught smuggling goods and people in and out of Latvia while working for the British. Uh, my father welcomed the camaraderie, uh, somebody to share time within the prison cell as opposed to solitary right. confinement. Uh, these two individuals befriended each other. They helped each other endure the hardship. Zergard taught my father to weave a Latvian rug on a potato sack to pass the time, taught him to play chess would um, translate Pravda issues so that he would be current on world events, even though from a Soviet perspective, right. he had a, an idea of what was going on in the world. But at the same time, my father's living with this guy in eight foot by 12 foot cell. It's hard not to get to know him. You know, you're in a confined space. But in the back of my dad's head, who is this guy? What's he doing when I'm sleeping? Why was he chosen to be my cellmate? Right. And so he thought that he was probably a plant and would probably report on anything that my father would do or say while in captivity. And for the most part, I think that's correct. We never confirmed it. There's no proof that I've, that's ever surfaced. Well, no physical proof. Um, two years ago or so, I got in touch with a gentleman who was doing research on, I want to say, Raoul Wallenberg. Is that the correct name, correct pronunciation? Um, who was a Jewish individual who was captured in the end of World War II by the Soviets, and the last diary entry or last entry that they had is that the Soviets had taken him captive. Then he disappeared. And for many, many years, people have tried to figure out where is Raoul Wallenberg, what happened to him? Well, this one individual seems to have been connecting dots and has followed the trail of Zergard Kremish, my father's cellmate. And prior to my father and Zergard being in, uh, incarcerated together, Zergard was in two or three other prisons with two or three other high-profile prisoners. Right. So that's clue one. Yeah. One of which this individual thinks could have been Raoul Wallenberg, hmm. but there's no way to find right. that out. Um, and then at the end of that, he did some more research. He's talked to the family in Latvia, uh, the descendants, the children, or whoever was alive at the time a few years back. And they told the story that once a month, Zergard would meet with a KGB officer at his home. So 
put two and two together, right. I'm pretty sure he was a plant. Um, but again, there's no physical proof I've ever uncovered, only the stories I've heard from re reliable sources. Right, and, and, and since your father perceived this probably from the very beginning, we may never be able to answer this question. It would be interesting to know if he purposely passed along any mm -hmm. disinformation uh, to, try to try to get it back to the Soviets through his cellmate. Not that I'm aware of. I don't think Dad tried to do any disinformation to uh, his cellmate to get back up to the KGB. I do believe that he um, was very careful at all times not to say something he shouldn't. So the, the story uh, never went away for most people in academia, but uh, it's now being brought back to light uh, in Hollywood, uh, in, in Bridge of Spies. Uh, a movie came out last year, uh, and if you missed it now, it's out on uh, both DVD and Blu-ray and on demand and everywhere else. Um, this is not the first movie that is about your father. There's a wonderful 1970s-era movie with Lee Majors, uh, who, if people might know from The Six Million Dollar Man and The Fall Guy. Uh, but this is significantly better. No offense to Lee Majors and the people who made the movie in the 70s. Um, to me, I figure this has to be anxiety-producing. So much has been said incorrectly about your dad's life and about this mission there's some like we just talked about a lot of these misperceptions how did you how did they make you feel comfortable that they were going to get the story right <laughs> well uh let me talk briefly about the lee major movie okay i was a kid about 10 11 years old at that time he was in the height of his career six million dollar man so when um, i was told that you know lee majors the six million dollar man was going to portray my dad i was like oh my god oh this is awesome as a 10 year old kid um, and Dad was a technical consultant on that movie. And so, for the most part, that movie is fairly accurate. But again, it's Hollywood. Right. And there's dramatic effect and artistic liberty and um, a little embellishing now and then. So even in that one done in 76, there were some errors in the details. But that's what Hollywood does. They, they make it better. Um, and in regards to this movie, The Bridge of Spies, I found out a rumor sometime in June of 2014 that... Spielberg was thinking of doing this movie. I'm thinking, oh, it's a rumor. He'll never do this. Well, next month, I got confirmation, July 2014, that he had selected to do this movie. And I'm going to myself, thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, what do I do? How do I reach out to Steven Spielberg? Right. How do I call him? You can't pick up the phone. Right. <laughs> um, so through some friends in Hollywood, I contacted. That was a dead end. Google found a few names that had worked with him on projects, found a few email addresses that corresponded to the name, sent out a blanket email. Hi, Gary Powers Jr. Understand Steven Spielberg's going to be doing a movie on the Bridge of Spy, or a movie on my father. I would like to get in touch with the appropriate people to express the Powers' concerns, the family concerns. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to reach out to and tell them was that if they based their information on the misinformation of the 50s and 60s that they would paint Dad in a negative light. Right. If they based Dad's uh, uh, reputation and Dad's information on the declassified files that have come to surface over the last 50-plus years, then they would be painting him as a hero to our country. So I end up talking with Mark Platt, the producer, uh, sometime in July. Uh, I think he liked what I had to say. He hired me on as a technical consultant. I went up to New York, I was on set, met with Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, the actor Austin Stoll, who portrayed my father. I provided a, a tons of answers to questions, uh, photographs, family photographs that they used and photoshopped to put actors' heads on for the movie, introductions uh, to two individuals, uh, Ed Moody, who was the FBI agent responsible for capturing Rudolph Abel, who's still alive, 90-plus years old in Tennessee, and um, Joe Murphy, uh, who's portrayed in the movie as a U-2 pilot, a colleague of my father, but in real life was a CIA um, security officer who was tasked to go ID this pilot and bring him back home. So um, I worked with these individuals. I provided Austin Stoll, the actor who portrayed my father, uh, audio tapes of my dad talking about his experiences so that Austin could get an idea for the character and, and who he was portraying. Uh, I uh, provided these tapes to Spielberg and the technical officials with the movie that used it in the DVD bonus discs. Mm -hmm. You hear my father talking about his experiences. Uh, I'm featured on the bonus disc talking about the shoot down, the interrogation, what he'd gone through. Uh, basically, the, the, the facts of right. the U2 incident 
that complements the fiction of the U2 incident in the movie. Um, now and the you, movie, you're an extra in the movie, too, I, right? I was actually yeah. an extra. I did not know I was going to be an extra. I'm in California at Beale Air Force Base thinking I'm going to answer questions and help out where I can. They say, hey, put this suit on. Oh, that's a good fit. Okay, sign this release. <laughs> don't say anything. You're not SAG uh, actor, right. but you know, you're going to be an extra. You're going to walk this way, sit that way. Don't look at the camera. Okay, fine. So I was in the movie. It was an awesome, awesome experience. Really, really enjoyed it. Uh, flattered. I didn't think. Yeah, I you're in a Spielberg movie. Yeah, now. oh my <laughs> gosh. Not, not only that, the, the, in New York, uh, when they brought us up, my wife and my son, we were sitting directly behind Steven Spielberg and one of the producers as he is directing, as he is cut lights, camera, what's this guy looking at? No, he shouldn't be looking there. He's got to do this instead. Film students would have given their eyes right. to be <laughs> in this seat. And here we are just in awe of, of watching this brilliant person do his magic on the screen. And to see all the behind the stuff, all the wires, all the cables, all the lights, see the actors in position, see them doing it live, and then to watch it on the screen, you don't see the wires, right. the lights, all the behind the scenes stuff. Just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, but with this, um, when I signed on as a consultant, I had to read through the contract. And basically, they said that um, they didn't have to listen to what I had to say. It's like, okay. And they also said, basically, in a paraphrase, that if I didn't like the end result, I couldn't sue. Well, hmm, do I throw the dice? What do I do? Right. This is a pickle. But I thought it was more important to reach out and try to assist the best I could to relay the family's stories and, and what we knew to be factual than to go and walk away and, and ignore this career. You have no power if you oh, yeah. go from the outside, and, yeah. And this movie is going to define my father's reputation for the next 50 years or foreseeable future. It's a Steven Spielberg movie. Right. <laughs> so signed on the dotted line. They, they, they were wonderful, okay, treating me and, and the, 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 what they did. and it, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. But to the movie. Now, people who have seen the movie... Um, will realize that it is historically accurate. The Red Scare, the Red Menace, the feelings of the time period, and those feelings that some people felt towards my father, towards Rudolf Abel being a Soviet spy, mm -hmm. and towards Donovan representing this Soviet spy, some of which feelings are not so flattering. At one point in the movie, uh, they basically say that my dad's one of the most hated men in America. So these feelings and the big picture of the movie is accurate. Now, the details of every scene. It's Hollywood. Right. Yeah, we, we talk about that all the time. I mean, it, 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 a, a, a so, realistic spy movie would be one of the most boring movies oh, ever made. Oh, I want to give one example of, of the fact and fiction of yep. the movie and what actually took place. Now, the shoot-down, in and of itself, was a dramatic event. My father gets shot down at altitude. The nose pitches forward. The wings break off. He goes into an inverted spin. He can't use the ejection seat. He'll sever off his legs. He undoes his harness. Uh, I'm sorry. He opens up the canopy, which floats off into space, undoes his harness, and is immediately sucked up halfway out of the plane, maybe two or three feet. He's connected by his air hose. Mm -hmm. He can no longer reach the destruct button. He's trying to struggle to get to the destruct button. He can't reach it. He realizes he's got to get out of the plane. He breaks free of the air hose, falls through the airplane. His parachute opens. Down he goes. In the movie, similar but a little different. The missile explodes. The plane pitches down. The wings don't break off yet. They gain speed, zooming down, you know, dramatic effect. Uh, the pilot in the movie takes off his harness, looks at the destruct button. Just, as, just about when he's about <laughs> to touch the destruct button, the canopy breaks, right. shatters, and it sucks him up out of the plane. Yeah. So he couldn't hit it. He's now connected by his air hose. Ten feet of air hose, swinging wildly <laughs> around the plane. <laughs> Um, so Spielberg made a dramatic event right. even that much more dramatic. And when you see it, oh, it's an awesome sequence. Um, and he's trying to crawl back in the plane. He's right there, and he gets really, really close to the struck button. And just as he's about to touch it, the air hose breaks, and he falls free. His parachute opens. He looks up. Here's the plane about to fall down around him. And at the very last minute, the tail section breaks off, and the parachute wobbles a little bit, and it misses him, and he parachutes to the ground. So fact and fiction. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it's Tom Hanks in the movie plays James Donovan, who may, people may not know. Well, people may know him now because of the movie. But uh, 
you had a chance and you've had a chance and you now have a relationship with Donovan's family mm-hmm. too um, because he he is this very interesting character in history uh, who goes on to do some pretty extraordinary things with Cuba and getting the Bay of Pigs people out and other things too. Um, there, there, you should start an organization of Cold War kids or, or because you got Sergei Khrushchev, you got Donovan's kids, you got you. David Eisenhower. Eisenhower, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, how how is this relationship? I mean, this is the these are the kids of the man who helped get your father back out of prison in the Soviet oh, Union. So, in regards to the Donovan children and and myself and my sister Powers' children, we had never reached out to them. We had never been in touch with them up until recently, be as a result of the movie. I got in touch with Beth, the granddaughter of uh, James Donovan. I don't know six months ago or so, she was getting ready to republish her grandfather's book, Strangers on a Bridge. And so I uh, worked with her on that, uh, gave a little blurb, best book ever written, uh, and, and now help to sell them where I go when I do presentations. As a result, I first met her by email. And then at the premiere in New York, October 16th, I believe, of 2015, that's when I actually met her in person. I met uh, James uh, Donovan's son, Britt Donovan, and some of the other siblings. We sat down, we talked, we shared some stories. It was very, very nice to finally meet them in person. Mm. And it turns out that they had shared some stories uh, with me, and I had shared some stories with them, and we connected the dots. Right. And there was one uh, that I never was sure, but I, I rumored that when my father got home as a thank you gift uh, he sends over to James Donovan a really large, I don't know, five pound ten pound country ham uh, about on or about the November December, Thanksgiving or Christmas so it was you know, a thank you gift for getting him out of prison and at the same time I'm talking to the Donovan kids, they confirm the story that yeah I remember eating that ham, we <laughs> talked about it at the table, so it was nice to have that connection absolutely <laughs> Well, Francis Gary Powers Jr., thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. We really appreciate you, uh, you telling your father's story and, and clearing up these myths uh, and, and so we can really understand what a true hero your dad was. Well, I appreciate that. And, and one thing just for the record and for people who want more information, uh, both in your gift store here and on my homepage, GaryPowers.com, uh, you can get copies of Operation Overflight, Strangers on a Bridge, and other mementos of this time period. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.